Good morning. I think I was the only one wearing a tie here last night, so I decided that it was Saturday morning. This for me is as relaxed as I get. <laughs> Most people think I sleep in a suit, <laughs> and I actually do. <laughs> last night we ended by the introduction of the standard the firstborn son. And we talked about the return of the standard in light of the fact that we had departed so far from the truth. And we defined the firstborn from the eternal differently than we define the firstborn from the temporal. But even in the temporal, you will begin to see applications of the principle of the firstborn that varied the theme in the natural because it's not simply, even in, in, the, in the firstborn in the natural, it's not simply um, a, a matter of who is first from the womb. Because there, every principle, in fact, the entire earth, has been constructed as an allegory of the invisible realm. That is why creation speaks so eloquently to the nature of the creator, because it is a visible representation of the invisible God. And if you understand creation anyway, how else could it be but a reflection that speaks loudly of its creator. You see? And in all of creation, you will find continuous, repeated references to the creator. But it's veiled because it's available to the natural eyes and to the human mind. But when the mind has been re-choreographed, to the understanding of the heavens, then all of a sudden creation yields its secrets routinely to the sons of God. Indeed, all creation is groaning in anticipation of the reacclamation of the sons of God to both their divine status and the corresponding purpose. Then creation, you see, creation has actually been established to aid the sons of God in their purposes in the earth. That's why the primary son, the primogenitor, could sleep in the boat. Because creation is not his enemy. Creation is subject to him and cannot be his enemy. It is when we have fallen that we begin to rely on the technology of survival, which the soul, which is the craft of the soul, to survive within what it perceives as a hostile environment. But the entirety of creation is an allegory to the creator. And in all of creation, there is not a more substantial allegory to God himself than man. And I want to unpack that somewhat. Okay? But to come back to this, we must be restored to a standard. A standard is the authentic, the authentic thing brought back. 
And when you bring back the authentic, it dominates in the fashion of lordship. It's tyrannical, not in the sense of abusive behavior, but in the sense that it brooks no comparison. It is alone. It is unique. It is the thing. Every nation on the earth, in some form or another, has a concept called um, the, the, the Bureau or the Office of Standards. Because if you don't know what the standard is, then chaos will rule in every aspect of the affairs of men. Imagine if we had no particular way of determining accurately what a standard for electricity was. What would happen? Well, your, your, your appliances would be worthless. If you could not determine the length of things, how would you purchase um, lumber for your house? I mean, everything would have to be custom-made on site. Imagine the burdensome nature of the cost of that. There has to be standards. I understand that we do not talk like this in church because we have bifurcated reality into church reality and natural reality. That's rubbish. Ours is not a theology based in getting us to heaven. Ours is an understanding in the earth of the order of heaven that provides us with a way of life in the earth that is distinctly supported and sustained by heaven for the purpose of showing the invisible within the realm of the visible. That standard, you see, cannot be ignored. That standard cannot be set aside. In the chaotic nature of the world, what is most needed is the bringing back of that standard of life. What is most astonishing to me in the present moment in American politics, for example, this is how real this thing is that we're talking about. All right? We have the front runner of the Republican Party, a petulant child named Donald Trump. It's beyond arrogant. It's simply petulance. It's a man who has never grown up. He's frozen in time in the sixth grade. We all recognize the schoolyard bully who loves to get in fights. But that's not what's shocking to me, as bad as that is. What is absolutely, what absolutely escapes my ability to comprehend is that his largest block of supporters are the evangelical church of America. And nobody sees that the church in America loves the petulant child 
because it identifies with the petulant child. God is literally giving them an opportunity to see themselves reflected in what can only be characterized as the disgusting and uncivilized character of a bully whose only claim to fame is he happens to have a lot of money. I tell you this. I believe that unless the church graduates back to the standard of the firstborn, it has already lost its relevance in the world. Now, I don't mean to talk about American politics. I want to open a window. See, if you don't know how to see things, they'll be paraded in front of you, and you will think the emperor is fully clothed. When what is apparent ought be apparent even to a small child. Where is the mature, at what level may we peg the maturity of the current church? The answer is consumers. Consumers. And so our understanding of grace has remained at the level of consumers. And the thought that we were configured by God to actually be the dispensers of grace in the earth is a new thought, even though it's ancient in its fact that it is written. Paul said, undoubtedly, you've heard of the grace of God that was given to me for you Gentiles. What is he saying? He's saying, I am carrying the presence of God intentionally to be deposited with you as a benefit to you so that you might now come to be reconciled together with the Jews in the one Corpus Christi, the body of Christ. And I carry grace to accomplish your reconciliation to God in Christ. See, the Son has life in himself. And it is his intention to give that life to whomever he wills. The manner in which he imparts that life is to make you carriers of his grace. But no petulant child has either the intention or the maturity to carry the grace of God. I'll say it again. No child given to throwing tantrums, cares enough about anybody else to be able to be entrusted with being the word of life to them. That's why we all want to go to heaven when we die and think that grace only exists to get us to heaven. It does. But Jesus was full of grace, which means he had in him 
the five configurations of grace, which I'll come to later on this morning. Right? But at the moment, I want us to come back and revisit the necessity for reintroducing the standard of the firstborn. And to remind you, last night I said that the standard of the firstborn is not that he's first in time. He is the first in rank because he is the standard of what the Father is like. He is the likeness of the Father. He is the authentic measure of the Father. So if you see that measure, who do you see? The Father. Did he say anything like that in your recall? If you have seen me, you have seen my Father. Because the Father and I are one. So where do you think you are going if you are being brought back into the standard? That the Father is in you and you are in the Father and you and the Father are one. And you are also one with everyone else who also is in the Father. We're beyond unity. The revelation of oneness has come to us by being assembled to the standard known as the firstborn. I know that we're singing, I am a firstborn son, which is to say, I have been assembled to the firstborn, and in the eyes of the Father, I am indistinguishable from the firstborn. By reason of being assembled. Because the firstborn is only one son. He's a corporate son. He's a corporate son. One body, many members. Now you know all these things. Am I telling you something you didn't know? Did you, did you never read? Is this the first time you've ever heard? 1 Corinthians 12, 12. Though the body is comprised of many members, it's one body. And though all the parts are many, they form one body. And so it is with Christ. So it is with the body of Christ. Many members, one body. You know, one of the things that amuses me, it amazes me and it amuses me, is that we all seem to want to insist on our individuality. How absurd is, this, is it for parts of the body to insist on their individuality? When do they have relevance? Assembled as one. If they're disassembled and are insisting on being recognized for being a part, what is their state? They're in a, lab, they're in a laboratory being examined. They're dismembered. There's no life in them. You may observe them as organs and parts, 
separated from the body, they're without life. All you may do is observe what they were potentially constructed to be, not what they are. They only can be what they are being assembled. And being assembled as one. Now, I use that analogy because it's the analogy that the scriptures use. Many members, one body. And so it is with Christ. As it is with the human body, which is the thing that is used for the analogy, the visible that might analogize to the invisible, and so it is with Christ. Many members, one body. Now, when you're assembled to Christ and functioning in Christ, you are not lacking in relevance. In fact, you are encouraged by that assembling to be everything that you were created to be. Assembling the parts assembled to the human body do not lack relevance or fullness in their function merely because they're assembled. What is true is that there are limits to their design functionalities. So for example, my eye ought not try to function as my foot. It's not designed for both. But my feet need to carry my eyes to what they see, to the horizons that they see. But without the eyes, my feet will not get very far. Many members, one body. Now what was lost in, the, in, in Adam's rebellion, what was lost was the ability to function as a corporate man. What, was, what resulted was the imperative of functioning alone. Before the fall, how did Adam function? Well, every day he went to meet with his father. Did I misread something? And do you not know these things? Every day, Adam consciously participated in a corporate function. Father and son. And as long as he did that, his wife was at peace with him. And the moment he did not do that, he broke relationships with everyone, with his father and with his wife. And within one generation, one of his sons murdered the other because that is the necessary product of one of, of being 
isolated and alone. You fight for your own survival because that's what orphans do. When you have an orphan who rules a nation, it is impossible for him to concentrate on the good of all. And he's constantly, even in what he says, if you examine his direction, it is very much about what benefits him. When an orphan rules a nation, or when an orphan is a king, when an orphan is a business tycoon, that's what Donald Trump is. It's all about him. And Sometimes they think that power gives them invincibility, that they become very smart. They're wise in their own eyes. And manipulating people to their own will is simply the form that their petulance takes. If you understand these things, it's easy enough to deconstruct what you're looking at in the world. It doesn't escape these quantifications, because this is the standard. Once you bring out the template, you can measure every behavior, and everything that does not line up with the template is deviant. It deviates. It goes away from. It misses the mark, which is the definition of sin. Misses the mark. It is non-conformed to the standard. And it doesn't matter. If everybody agrees with the deviation, it just means that you have collective deviancy. And that is a treacherous and dangerous society. To begin to cure the problem of the fatherless, the answer is quite simply, we must be refathered. You can't talk the fatherless into a better culture. It's endemic to the perspective of the orphan to live at the expense of everyone else if it takes that to live. And people who are so, so wrapped up in that process become unconscionable. So a, simple, so a house break-in ends up being a murder. Because along the way, the orphan has lost his conscience. It's how his humanity has been distorted by his deviation from the standard. When you have leaders who encourage the climate of self-aggrandizement, they are the very rootstock from which the instability of nations come. I think you understand more about what I'm saying <laughs> than I think I understand <laughs> about what I'm saying within your context. But that's how the template works. Now, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Because he did not come 
to establish his own relevance. Independent of who the father is. He came to restore to the sons the understanding of the father. Why? Because the father is invisible, but he becomes the visible representation of the father. When Adam departed from God, might I say, just in summary, that what was lost, what was lost to Adam, functionally and culturally, what was lost to Adam was the spirit of sonship. What was lost to Adam was the spirit of sonship. He no longer represented anyone but himself. The relevance of a son placed in a location is that he brings the image of the father into that location. Who was Adam? According to Luke, the third chapter, the genealogy of Christ that goes from Jesus all the way back to Adam, at the end of that chapter, you know, Jesus himself it began by saying, who was the, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Mathat, and I won't go 63 of those on you, uh, the son of Seth, who was the son of Adam, who was the son of God. Image and likeness. But when he departed from his father, if Adam is the son of God, who is Adam's father? God. Simple enough. It's like saying, which hand is the peanut in? <laughs> Guess again. If Adam is the son of God, God is Adam's father. Hmm? It's not otherwise. It's that simple. So when, when, father, when Adam met with God every day, what did you have? You had a, com a common union. A communion. What is that indicative of? It's indicative of a corporate expression. The one being expressed through the other. And, in, and if, if you're given a corporate expression, then you automatically think of the, the position of the other relative to you. So, when Adam speaks, he understands that he's speaking for God. When he interacts with his wife, he understands that she may speak for him. Because that's the principle. And just as his father assumes responsibility for the son's action, inasmuch as the son's action is a faithful representation of the intent of the father, so when a wife speaks for a husband, inasmuch as hers is a faithful representation of him, then he honors that by, and honors her. Now, what is the domestic result of all of that? Peace. Harmony within your domain. Your children are not threatened. The future is not insecure. This is righteous rule. But when the father, when the son rejects the father, what is the immediate message that his wife takes from anything he says? 
Well, I'll give you a hint. What did he say? The day after, he said, or, or, or when he was confronted by God and was giving an account, and he referenced his wife, what did he say? The woman you gave me. So actually, it's not my fault. You two sort it out. It's either you who gave her to me, or her, or both. One of the things that has been commented on about Donald Trump is he cannot take blame for anything. That's what a child does. You didn't see me. It wasn't me. It's not my fault. It's what a child does. When I'm listening in, in meetings uh, where we're attempting to, address, to find and address problems, I as much look to hear the one who says it's not my fault as anything else. Because I know we have a problem with someone who cannot own the responsibility of having made a bad decision. Because you can't instruct him. At that point, it's pointless to engage him at the level of his fault, of the level of the discussion of the actual fault. If you're going to redeem him, you have to dig down deeper and find where that poison came into the root. Otherwise, he has to be discarded. Which is an absolutely last resort. And I'm not, not something I'm advocating, but I'm showing you where redemption lies. You have to get to the root. So where do you think God gets with us? When we're born again, we're given the spirit of sonship because we lost the spirit of sonship. The thing that Adam lost was a view of God as his father and a view of being connected to anyone else, ultimately to either his wife or his children. And that became and has become the default culture of mankind. You were born into it, I was born into it. And we view each other in all kinds of nonsensical ways. You know, if some people think that um, if the pilot of the aircraft is not white, then the likelihood of a crash is <laughs> <It's> increased. <laughs> what absolute folly. I think I've probably hit something there. It's perhaps why in this hour God is raising up these, some of these Indian fellows. You know, Thamo and I are about as different as two men can be. I'm more perhaps professorial in my approach. He's more business executive. And Segi, is in the, he's in the cloud of witnesses. <laughs> A remarkable collection of individuals that I think God was amused to, to uh, individually sort of 
find them and say, I think I'll, uh, like, play, like children playing jacks, <laughs> I'll scatter them on the stage between Peter Meritzburg and Durban. No. It's, it's, it's folly, you see. Th- these, are, these are seminal indications of the culture of an orphan. We find our security in what we think are predictors of certainty and well-being. It's utter rubbish. But it doesn't keep us from embracing foolishness. It's simply a reflection of how we are internally. Grace comes by every configuration. Because God comes. God created every human being with the specific intent of manifesting himself uniquely in each one. So you tell me, who is the greatest? Well, if you even ask the question, who is the greatest? It shows that you're uninformed as to the nature of God. That, the two, the two uh, sons, the woman who came and proposed both sons, sit on the right and on the left of Jesus. We chuckle when we observe her immaturity only to discover ourselves in her. So the necessity of bringing back the standard was directly related to the fact that the spirit of sonship was lost. And when you were born again, Leave it alone, it's not bothering anybody. <laughs> uh, in, when, when God brings back the spirit of sonship, he first gives it to you again in the capacity of a child. So you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear but you receive the spirit of sonship by whom you cry, Father, Father. Now why would he say that you did not receive the spirit that makes you a slave again to fear? When Adam lost the spirit of sonship, what was his first confession? I heard the sound of your voice in the garden, he said, And I was afraid. Adam confessed that the presence of God makes him afraid. It's the definitive condition of the orphan. The orphan lives in fear continuously. And the more you have, the more you've built up upon which you now rely, the more fearful you become of losing it and being vulnerable again. So God, who is our Father, who knows all of that, what do you suppose he begins to do almost immediately after he gives you the spirit of sonship? He begins to deal with you about the things you're afraid of. How are you going to have an increase of sonship 
when you're full of fear? Where will the spirit of sonship rest in you? You see? So he begins to show you his love, which has the effect of casting out everything that you're afraid of. But the orphan has his idea of what love is. So the orphan wants from God everything that sustains him without dealing with what he fears. Right? If you're afraid of the loss of money because you've actually come to put your confidence in your financial supply, what does the orphan pray for? More money. If you're afraid that your job is um, tenuous, what does the orphan pray for? Security. Now tell me this. If God answered those prayers as you're asking, if he gave you exactly what you wanted, how likely are you to benefit from the spirit of sonship? Not at all. Because he keeps you, your prayers reflect your fear at the level where you are. You pray about and for what you're afraid of losing. You pray about the things in which you feel vulnerable. And occasionally, you'll ask God for something that he can answer. And he'll give it to you. Just like you asked. And that works terribly in you because it's just enough for you to keep hanging on. But you think, I'm actually, I'm not sure if he'll answer me tomorrow. So if he gives you the money you're asking for for the bills today, while you are perfunctorily giving thanks for today's supply, you're also asking the question, what are you going to do for me tomorrow? So there's no rest in today. There's no rest in the provision of sonship today. The goal of sonship is to bring you to rest. Where you cease from your labors. In the time remaining, I want to just go, let me just go here for a little bit and I'll come back. Because I want to show you exactly why God conditioned Jesus from being a child all the way to the son whom he presents so that you may see the pattern and apply the same standard to your lives. Because Christ also suffered for us, 
Therefore, we should walk in his steps. How much suffering do you think God will put on you in the course of your life? Well, and when do you think the sufferings will stop? Lauren, we continue this morning. (laughs) I want to show you something. This is Paul from... Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. I'll come back to this passage, but I want to point out some things about the quantum of suffering that you may anticipate. In your journey to maturity, there are distinct steps of maturity. There are distinct stages of sonship. There are five different words in the scriptures that defines sonship. From napios, which is a son who is a child, paideon, who is often referred to in the context of being a toddler, to technon, which is typically analogous to being a teenager, to Neoniscus, which is a young man, to Weos, H-U-I-O-S, Weos, which is when God presented Jesus at the baptism of John, he said, this is my beloved Weos, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, a child, Nepios, is born to become the huias who is given. That is why when you're born again, you receive the spirit of sonship by which, like any newborn, you know it's a live birth because it cries out. It cries out, Father, Father. At that point, you, you are a son who has been given the power to become a mature son. That's simple enough. Once you see it, it's simple enough. You've been given the power to become weos, the son who represents the father. Paul here is speaking as a son who comes to Asia to represent the father. This, these are the big leagues now. These are not county matches. This is where you encounter the prince of Asia. These demonic powers that have held entire societies in bondage for as long back as history records. When you come into their domains, they recognize who you are. They say so. You remember, seven sons of Sceva tried to duplicate what Paul was doing, and they said, Jesus we know, Paul we know, but you are just the sons of Sceva. 
They understand who had grace for the Gentiles. They understand who carried the authority to dislodge the spirits that held entire nations in bondage. And in a sense, I'm going ahead of myself to show you that there is a direct connection between the stages of sonship, the discipline of God through suffering, and your purpose in life. The scriptures are not just like a, a, a box of puzzle pieces that you throw out on the floor and have children decide what colors they like. They fit together to present a picture of the eternal in time that when you see it becomes a reliable basis for your understanding of the, the world around you, yourself in it, and the will of God. That is called maturity. This is being able to handle the grace of God, the economy of God, in its many forms. So this great apostle comes to Asia, encounters the prince of Asia, and there's no relenting, the battle is on. That we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even for life. Paul is saying that. Now, and you're likely to say, well, if Paul despaired for life, what chance do I have? But that's not the whole story. Paul is introducing something that is greatly beneficial to us. But I wanted at this point to show you that there are times when you, pursuing God, following what God has said for you to be and to do. Going in the leading of the Spirit. The man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And they go over into Achaia. At the leading of God. And they were burdened beyond measure. Despairing, how did he put it? Burdened beyond measure, he said. Above strength. We couldn't move the blocks. It was bigger than us. It was more than we could do. Burdened beyond strength. So that we despaired even of life. This is the quantum of suffering that you will eventually reach. Paul did, and Jesus did. Why have you forsaken me? Great drops of sweat like blood formed on his forehead. And in his cry on the cross, why have you forsaken me? Burdened beyond, beyond strength. Tested beyond measure. God intends to break anything that you have within you that is inclined to cause you to rely on it rather than him. This is the process of God smashing the idols of your life. Be encouraged. You don't have to seek it out. It is going to seek you out. 
So, what do you learn then when you are burdened beyond measure and beyond strength? Where do you go with that? It's obvious that this is not a Pentecostal gospel because by now the answer would be, I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. <laughs> I got news for you. He clipped your wings. <laughs> you will be here. You're not going anywhere until this is done. This is the work of God in you. We have an absolutely bizarre and unbiblical view of suffering. Our view of suffering might be summarized in two, in two um, set pieces. One is if you're suffering, God is upset at you. And the other is if you're suffering, it's your fault. You better repent. Now sometimes you're suffering by self-induced turmoil. That has no known redemptive value. And there, but there's a cure for it. You can repent. You, you discover that your suffering is self-induced, repent. Which means change your mindset about that form of behavior. But when you're suffering, the Bible says, at the hand of God, and uh, uh, I'm not sure which, which, whether it was Randolph or, uh, I'm not sure which of the two of you said um, the, the, that if you, if you, the spirit of glory and of Christ rests on you. Randall, the spirit of glory and of Christ rests on you. Do not think it strange that you should suffer trials of many kinds. I think that any of the trials that God brings on us, we would naturally avoid if we had a choice. I always knew, for example, that there was a root in me that defaulted to an idea of being my own supply. It's one of the reasons I went to law school. Not for my health, but for my prosperity. And I fully intended to become wealthy by my activities in the law. But I always knew since my childhood, I always knew that I had a destiny bound up with God. I was simply running ahead of the storm. And since I knew I would be required to live by faith, I thought I would store up enough residuals ahead of time so I could have a fully funded walk of faith. Because I was smart in my own understanding. I thought I could run ahead of that storm and make it look good. I'm just working for Jesus. Yeah. But all the while I was getting my dividends from AT&T. <laughs> Doesn't work that way. I would not have volunteered for the rigorous uh, discipline of the Lord in bringing me to trust him financially. I would never have thought to volunteer for that. 
You know why I know all these examples of things I'm telling you about? That has been my journey. I'm the one who said, oh God, give me more money so I don't have to face the uncertainty of what am I going to do tomorrow. Oh, I, oh God, protect me from this person because he threatens my security. I'm the one who said those things. I found that I was not unique in that regard. I was, if anything, every man. But it's the, it's the normal arc of our trajectory, you see. What I've also found in all of the stages of my growth, and I began last night by saying, when I encountered God the other day in the address of my father, he brought me to the realization that I had, with some degree of consistency, now come to understand who he is as a mature son, and I could no longer indulge anything below that level in my life. I understood. It was as if the veil were pulled. Thamo and I were talking about this the other day. We, we see so many people who posture before the people of God from the pulpits, and they want everybody to think that they're invincible and they make no mistakes and all of that. And I think this is our conversation, that we both have such a disdain for hypocrisy and pretense that we push back from it to say, you know, we're not that. And yet, for the last many years now, decade or so, what is inescapable is that it's the pleasure of the Lord to put us before his people and to authenticate what we say. I mean, I can't make happen in your lives, anything that I'm saying. When the words are released out of this vessel, if they, make a trans, if they have a transformative effect in your life, it is because the Spirit of God in you resonates with your spirit to the sound from heaven that has come through the gate of your ear. And suddenly... You're at the land where you're going, without effort, without toil. If that's so, that's an operation from God. I can't, I mean, do I even know most of, of you and the struggles and trials that you're going through? No, I don't. But as you listen to what I'm saying, there are, aha, I get that, didn't say, oh, wow, and so on going on in you. Well, that's an operation of the Holy Spirit. Spiritual words penetrating to the levels of your spirit. And that's where the transformation begins to take place. And in that regard, you are changed from that level of glory to another level of glory to another level of glory. And in you, Christ appears here and here and here from glory to glory to glory. Now, we'll come back in the next session and talk about 
what the stages are meant to produce and what economy supports each of the stages, what economy of grace supports each stage. But here we're still talking about bringing back the measure, bringing back the template of the authentic son and being conditioned to the template through suffering. So Paul had become mighty in God. But Paul's beginnings in the gospel explains why he needed to be tested beyond measure, beyond strength. You remember his testimony? He said, if any man thinks, this is to the Philippians, if any man thinks he has whereof he might glory in the flesh, I had more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, of the stock of Israel, and Hebrew of the Hebrews. Concerning the the requirements of the law, he said, I was blameless. With regards to zeal, I persecuted the church. He had an unblemished religious CV. If you wanted it done in the name of God, give it to Paul. He could hold the garments of those who were stoning an innocent man to death. He could drag men and women out of their homes and throw them in prison. He even was zealous enough to go to distant cities to arrest and persecute those whom he thought had strayed from the true faith. That's a man of remarkable strength. Would you agree? man of extraordinary dedication. And and his credentials coming to that were impeccable. He profited above his fellows. He was the leading disciple of Gamaliel, who was the grandson of Hyliel, who was the one who originated the golden rule. He had perfect religious pedigree. And in terms of actionable activities, He was head and shoulders above everyone else. And I submit to you that his soul was mighty. Now, when Adam removed himself from his father, his entire way of seeing everything changed from seeing things through the eyes of his father through seeing things from his own eyes. What I mean is, the eyes of his soul were opened. Because we have an audience of people, some of whom I know their baseline of understanding, others I don't, um, I tend sometimes to give a little bit more uh, to establish baselines. But you know that humans have a spirit, a soul, and a body. The spirit was given from God to connect man to the mind of God. The soul was given to interpret the wisdom of the heavens into actionable activity in the venue of time. When man was in perfect alignment with God, his spirit ruled his soul, and he saw creation, and he saw himself in creation through the eyes of the eternal. And he saw creation as the allegory of the invisible realm. 
But when he separated himself from God, when what was lost in the spirit in the loss due to the in the loss of the spirit of sonship, the quality that was lost was seeing things from God's point of view. That was the quality that was lost. But he could still see things. Now though, his thresholds were the earth. And immediately he began to see himself not as defined by the eternal, but as defined by the natural. That's when he said, I knew I was naked. Until then, he lived in such transparency before God that the glory of God clothed him. Imagine a bright light behind a transparent glass. What would you see? You wouldn't see the glass. You'd see the brilliance of the light. So Adam was clothed in the light and the glory of God. And no one could actually see that he didn't have clothes on. No one cared. But his condition was that he was clothed in the light. By the way, if you walk in the light, as he is in the light, what happens to you? The blood of Jesus cleanses you from all sin. You have fellowship one with another. And you see each other no longer clothed in flesh, but clothed in the spirit. In fact, what is the point of view to which we are being brought back? From Paul said in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, From now on, we regard no one any longer from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ that way, we do so no longer. Because if any man be in Christ, he is clothed upon with Christ. I, I just slipped in another scripture there. <laughs> He's clothed upon with Christ and he's seen as a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to God in Christ. You see? So the original state of Adam was his transparency that permitted the glory of God to shine through the sun. You know why? Because the sun is the radiance. Of his father's glory. And if you see the son. You see the father. So am I wrong in saying to you. That Adam. Reflected. It was not even a reflection. The glory of God in him. Shone through. And whoever could see him. Would only see the glory of God. It didn't matter then. That he didn't have any clothes on. In fact clothing was superfluous at that point. When you're restored, you're restored to that. Because the the gospel is the gospel of the light, of the glory of Christ Jesus. Which is now shed abroad in our hearts. So when what was lost in the spirit of sonship, well, what was lost to Adam was the spirit of sonship. And what was what replaced it was seeing himself according to and defined by creation. So his reference was no longer God. His reference was the animals around and nature itself. And the darkness of that 
caused him to see himself as just another object in creation. And different from God. Because when God came to meet with him, God did not come as a man. God came as a presence that he could hear the sound of in the garden. And in fact, even after he sinned, he could still recognize when the presence came. So God and man fellowship spirit to spirit. As God always does. God doesn't fellowship with anyone spirit to soul. The spirit himself testifies with our spirits that we are the sons of God. So Adam carried the glory of his father and it clothed him. Our admonition now is to clothe yourselves with Christ who is the express image of the father. The son is the radiance of his father's glory and the exact representation of his father's being. So we fell a long way and there was no one who more graphically typified the extent of that fall than Paul. He called himself the chief of sinners. You're the chief of sinners when you persecute those who bring you the word of life. And he understood that. Now he didn't remain as the chief of sinners. But his designation of himself was accurate. He wasn't just being superfluous in his self-effacing. He understood that when you persecute the life that was sent to redeem you, then you are so far down that you need dramatic help. Coming back all the way out of that, he had to be reinterpreted Uh, reintroduced to something so much greater than himself. And so he said that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even for life. And when I say to you, regardless of who you are, regardless of how cunning and crafty you may be, God intends to burden beyond measure and above strength. When God is done with you, there will be no strength left in you. And you can boast only of this, that you've been made weak. But that is the requisite condition that causes the soul to return to the rule of the spirit. That is when the soul is emptied of its potential. That condition is called death. And you die daily until you reach the point where there's nothing left to be killed. No resistance Ah, but when you do, you see, when you do, 
you now have the capacity to be filled with his presence and with the working of his mighty strength. So what should you do? You should glory in your weakness. Because when you are weak, then he in you is mighty. And that is when all that he is capable of doing through you begins to manifest where you are. I have it on good authority. It says it this way. So when Christ, for you died, and your life is now, now, at this point, not in heaven, not in the sweet by and by, for you died and your life is now hidden with God in Christ. So when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. And one of the things that's restored to you when you're clothed with Christ is your vision of all things that God is able to be and to do. I'll leave you at the end of this session with this one anecdotal reference from the scriptures. So Israel was on the verge of going up into the, the promised land, and come out of Egypt, and they were about to go up to the promised land. And God said to Moses, I'm frustrated with this people. I won't go up with you. I'll send the angel to go with you. And Moses said, Oh no, you're not. Because we know about angels. If you disobey them, they'll kill you. He said, In fact, if you're not going with us, I can't go. I won't go. I won't lead the people up. Without you, we perish. And so God said to Moses, then I'll go with you. And Moses said, well, this is a good start. I'm on a roll here. Show me your glory. Let me see what you see. So God told him, okay, on such and such a day, I'll, I'll meet you on the mountain. When God came down on the mountain to meet with Moses, he put him into Christ. To change his vision of who God is. And he saw the history of God. The hinder part of God. That's his history. He saw the history of God's dealing with man. And it gave him courage to lead the people up. Grace and peace be with you.